0: Hey everyone, Gaia Dami here. Welcome back to On The Tape. As always, I'm joined by my dear friends Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Today we're going to be talking about the modern day J.P. Morgan, as fate would have it. FinTech coming onto the scene. And some really interesting comments that we all saw on Twitter and that we have some views about. And later we'll be going off the tape in an interview with the great Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Now first let me start about this week's game The Monday night championship contest between Gonzaga and Baylor. Listen, I thought Gonzaga was going to kick their ass. Baylor imposed their will, Dan Nathan. Did you have any thoughts on that basketball game, which was never a game, by the way?
1: It was never a game. I mean, obviously, Gonzaga left it all in the court against UCLA in the semis on Saturday night, which actually was one for the ages. It's like they'll always have that, I guess. But that Monday night game was a bit of an embarrassment. You got to give them a shout out. That was their only loss the whole year. and It was a hard year for all involved. You don't sound at all enthusiastic
0: about that. Danny Moses, did you watch that game and did you have subsequent thoughts about that
2: game? I had plus four and a half thoughts on that game <laughs> with uh, with Baylor. So I was I was somewhat enjoying it. I was actually upset it wasn't as much of a, of a game. And you're right. I think that game against UCLA, which was the game of the tournament, that UCLA could have easily won, took everything out I'm still Gonzaga. trying to
0: figure out why did UCLA, they had to play a play in game as an 11th seed. Nobody's been able to explain that to me on the tape fans. If you're out there at me on Twitter and explain to me why UCLA had a play. They were the one of the first four in and one of the first four out as they say, but we'll save that for another time. Listen, Jamie diamond is on the tip of everybody's tongue. He is the modern day JP Morgan and he runs JP Morgan. He talked about the enormous competitive threat of FinTech in the near future for banks or his types of banks. He also talked about the fact that the good times are here to stay until at least the middle of 2023. And then he said something, one of my favorite quotes from the letter was, and I'm quoting here, I hope there is extraordinary discipline on how all of the money is spent. Well, guess what? I hope I play shortstop for the Yankee because Glaber Torres right now sucks, (laughs) number one. I hope I win Lotto because you'll never see me on TV again, number two. And hoping that they spend this money prudently is foolish. I mean, hope is never an investment strategy. It's going to be wasted. It's another $2 trillion on top of the $1.9 trillion on top of everything else that's going to happen going forward. Now we have a U.S. debt north of $30 trillion the dollar has started its descent once again, Danny Moses. You know, I thought the Jamie Diamond letter was interesting. To me, I read it and I'm looking at a man that's positioning himself at life post-JP Morgan. What does that mean? Is there a run for president in his future? I read that letter and I look at some of the far-arcing things that he talked about and I say, this is a guy that's running for office at some point.
2: So funny you say that. And no one's going to believe this that's out there. that probably thought this was pre-planned. I thought the exact same thing when I read that letter, either- So the next Treasury secretary or something down in D.C. was definitely a political thing. And I will say he did give some caveats as long as inflation doesn't rear his head, as long as there's not a covid variant. So he kind of hedged himself on that. I believe he also was referring to wasting money was the government spending money, not the stimmy checks necessarily. He was basically saying if that infrastructure plan is spent correctly, then it would be great for everyone. He also, as you commented, made the comment about the threat from fintech and what is the unregulated markets. And he used an opportunity to say he'll go out and acquire stuff if he wants, if it fits with their strategy. And he's upset that there's still these restrictions on the banks because he feels like if they had more cash to do what they wanted with, they could help the economy grow overall. But here we are. I mean, he's the king. It's a five hundred billion dollar company. It's the largest bank that you know that's out there. He also made some comments. I think where it got a little bit where you and I saw him the same is the talk about climate change and carbon credits and carbon taxes and applying that and how he's you know pro climate. Obviously, he's he's pro you know environmental and he wanted to make that point, but saying that things need to be done logically. So yeah, listen, he uh, gave an outlook, and we'll see what happens. They're positioned very well. Obviously, we've talked about before even these crises that we see these miniature issues that are happening in the market are pretty contained. The banks have never been, for the most part, the U.S. banks have never been healthier.
1: Yeah, so Guy Adami deficit hawk is not one that I kind of had on my bingo card this week. Lighten up there, Francis. I am
0: a deficit. No, shouldn't I be a deficit hawk? Oh, just spend. Everybody (laughs) go spend all the money you don't have. You know what? Knock yourself out. Put it on your credit cards because it doesn't matter because it's all going to be forgiven and we can print ourselves into oblivion. Sorry, Dan.
1: All right. But one one of my most interesting takeaways from that letter was, Jamie says, China's leaders believe that America is in decline. The Chinese the America that is losing ground in technology, infrastructure and education, a nation torn and crippled by politics, as well as racial and income inequality. I mean, I thought that was really interesting to me because really, I think if there was ever an administration to spend a couple trillion dollars to try to fix our infrastructure, which just doesn't need roads and bridges, that sort of thing, they're really trying to bridge with broadband and, and some of these other technological infrastructure priorities. They're trying to bridge the gap. I think, on some of these areas where we are seeing massive inequalities. So to me, I actually think it's necessary. I think that a lot of politicians, and we're not going to, this is not debating, this is not uh, meet the press or anything like that. I think that the Biden administration and the people with their fingers on the trigger here feel like they have one shot here to do something that they think is, is really something, it's, it's a hard political choice they're going to make. They're going to likely, if they push this through the way they're going to do it, they're likely going to lose the House, okay? And what does that mean? mean? That means that Biden could actually be impeached for the, a laptop or whatever you want. OK, so I, I actually I think it's a bold choice. I think they should go for it. Go big or go home.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, clearly go big or go home. Is, I mean, you might as well go big because there are no ramifications. At this point, you push everything to the middle of the table and see what happens. As a matter of fact, if you remember some of the James Bond movies, he'll take the keys out of his pocket and put that in the middle of the table as well, because you know what? What the hell? Why not? And I think that's where we are at this point. What Jamie didn't point out, and something that I've said on this podcast, something I've written about, something I've said on CNBC's Fast Money, Danny, don't at me for saying that, (laughs) is the fact that for 35 million people, at least in this country, this is full out early 1930s shit. And the fact that nobody brings that up to me is is interesting because, you know, there are great times for a lot of people. For some people in this country, it's never been better. If you own stocks, you're swinging from the chandelier. But if you're 35 or 40 million people in food lines, you're not all that enthralled by what's going on. All
1: right. Well, except, Guy, if you think about the, how did we get out of the Great Depression? We have to put people to work. You know, We have a lot of jobs here that are going away that have nothing to do with the pandemic. They've just been accelerated by the pandemic. So if we're talking about kind of digging some ditches here and remaking some stuff in the infrastructure, we're going to put a lot of people to work over the next 10 years or so. So wouldn't you rather spend money that way than saving an airline or saving you know a bank or something like that 100 percent. i'm not listen you should know where i stand on that
0: one i mean i'm a huge believer in corporate darwinism and i'll go back and say listen i'm they're wonderful people that worked at general motors and general motors nine ten years later has finally seemingly figured it out but you know what if you would let General Motors fail, guess what? It wasn't like the auto industry was going to go away. Something would have risen from the ashes and maybe we'd be five years ahead of where GM is right now. And oh, by the way, if you let the airlines fail, you think the airline industry was never going to come back? Somebody else would have figured it out and maybe done it a little bit better, Dan Nathan. Okay, well, GM did fail. (laughs) Uh, I mean, like they they did. No, 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 no. no. You understand what I'm saying. I mean, they did and then we subsequently bailed them out because you can't let General Motors fail. My pushback is, why? Other than the name and other than the cachet that they bring with them, why? It's a company that lost its way. And if you do believe in Darwinism and corporate Darwinism, something else would have risen from those ashes.
2: By the way, Guy, the government does now own some of the airlines. I think they own like 0.1% now of the airlines. They were given as warrants in exchange for all the money they gave. I want to say one other thing, though, which is going on in the economy. If you go buy a restaurant right now or you go to any service industry type company that's coming back, there is a billboard need workers. And I think what's happening is one of the consequences of the unemployment benefits, you know, which are which are great and the STEMI checks and is people not wanting, not needing to go back to work. And some people are making more by not working. And that's a political hot topic. I totally realize that. And some people can't find work, so they you know need to be taken care of. But that's an issue right now. So I don't know what that's going to mean longer term if we're getting a true read on unemployment and how it impacts the economy. I know the Fed's not going to be happy until they see unemployment down at 3% or something like that. But I think it's things are much better, at least from a liquidity profile out there, than economic indicators or unemployment indicators are telling us.
0: Maybe I'm too dour. Maybe I'm just too exercised today. You know, maybe, I don't know, something got my goat, as they say, which I never really understand that either. What the F does it mean to get somebody's goat? Dan, if you know, please interject. But if you don't know, we're going to move topics. Because the next thing I want to talk about is, is fintech, it's all the things that Jamie Dimon wrote about, the existential threat, he didn't use that term IM, to mainstream banks, is fintech. And Coinbase, I got to believe, is right in the epicenter of this fintech or this DeFi, whatever the, these, the, the guys and the gals call it. And they came out with a blockbuster growth outlook. Is going to go public, I think, on April 14th. This is one that Chamath, whose last name I can't pronounce, said that he missed, uh, and he sort of rused the fact that he did miss it, but it's one that he's really talked about a lot lately. You have some thoughts on the Coinbase there, Dan Nathan?
1: Yeah, so it's Chamath Palihapitiya. And that was actually a really, it was a very interesting tweet thread. He was giving congratulations to the team there, Brian Armstrong. And and what I think is actually most interesting about Coinbase is that, you know, we used to have some of the execs, we used to have Brian Armstrong, the founder, and Asif Herji, who was then the president a few years ago during that retail-driven frenzy in 2017. They used to come on the Fast Money. We used to have a Bitcoin bug down there. It used to kind of flashing between the S&P 500 and your Dow Jones industrial average guy. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that even during that retail frenzy, they were building out institutional products, for custody, for trading, for a whole host of other services that uh, relate to the way that institutional products are traded. So they were building out the future for mass adoption among institutions. And despite the fact that we saw you know, crypto just go down, what, 70, 80, 90 percent in most circumstances from the highs in 2017 to the lows in 2020, here's a company that's gone roaring back. I mean, last year, I think that they did more revenue in EBITDA. I think that was in that print the other day, than the ICE, which owns the New York Stock Exchange, then the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the NASDAQ, and the SIBO. That is truly astounding. Don't you think so, Danny Moses? Because you've been trading the markets for decades, and you don't exactly choose what exchange those products get cleared on. But you might never have traded on Coinbase. Here is a company that's been around for, I don't know, less than 10 years. And what did I just say? They're doing more EBITDA than some of the biggest exchanges in the world for the biggest products in the world.
2: Yeah, solid margins. I mean, just if you look at Q1 alone, you just mentioned, I mean, they're on track to do in 2021, probably six or seven billion in revenues and three to four billion in adjusted EBITDA. And that's only with 11.3 percent of the crypto market share, which I get equates like two to 220 billion in assets they have right now. So it's definitely a great platform. I actually traded on it. I bought Bitcoin at let's see, five thousand, and sold it at 5700. So I have an account there. That's a good trade,
0: though. I mean, you know, you (laughs) say that, yeah. yeah, In retrospect, I mean, now you look like a dipshit, (laughs) obviously, but at the Uh time, you looked like a genius.
2: And Ethereum shaking
0: his head. The folks at home can't see that because we don't have video here (laughs) on on the tape. But Dan is shaking his head at me.
2: I've been trying to get back in my account because if you remember, when you first traded on Coinbase, kind of like Robin Hood's offering free shares, they would transact, they would give you like a fraction of a Bitcoin for every so much that you actually traded on their platform. I can't get back in my account right now because I don't remember these passwords and it's like, two I feel like guy. I mean, I got two authentication things, so I haven't bothered. I'm hopeful that somehow I didn't sell something and maybe it's in there, sneaking in there. And I think it's also interesting that I think what I saw the top 5% of bitcoin holders control 98% or something of all the coins that are out there or something like that. So it'd be interesting to see how don't quote me on that stat, but it'd be interesting to see how mainstream keeps trading on the platform. And now kind of how Nasdaq used to trade. I think Nasdaq went public after the dot com blow up, I think in 2002 or something, but Nasdaq was always affiliated with kind of Silicon Valley companies, right? And you would for a while Nasdaq would trade on successful IPOs of companies when it was, you know, still on the smaller side of things. There's no question. Coinbase obviously is going to trade in relation to the the values of digital currencies. So it's another way for people to play it, and a clean way for people to play it. And certainly, I'm sure it's going to be 98% correlated to the price of bitcoins and other currencies out there, just because the average daily volume is predicated on the price of the digital currencies.
1: Yeah, I I think that that's actually one of the bear cases, right? If we were to have the sort of bear market that we had over the last couple of years into the the lows into 2020, a lot of their fees are denominated in crypto. But one of the things I'll tell you is really interesting is that if this company were having a slow quarter, let's say there's like dozens and dozens of these crypto things. And if you go and look at market cap and you look at some of the market caps of some of these tokens that are trading and the volume and then the uh, the market capitalization it's crazy, man. Like there's things that you've never heard of that have $20 billion market caps. So they could just decide one morning, oh, well, we're going to put Gaiadami coin on Coinbase after doing some due diligence that's trading like water over on competitor Binance. And all of a sudden they could create tons and tons of demand. So I, I guess my point is, it's a really interesting setup and it's very different than most of the traditional financial services companies that we're used to valuing. And I'll just say this, I mean, I can't tell you what it comes out of this direction listing next week, you know, what it's worth. But this company is here to stay. OK. And, and this is probably like buying, you know, Charles Schwab in like the early 80s or something like that. So I'm not saying you buy it on the direct listing. I think it's something that this will disrupt so many of the financial services companies that we've been talking about uh, or investing in for the last 20 years.
0: So, Danny, I'm going to quick, I'm going to ask you the question because you always nobody. Listen, we're not here to play the ring the bell game and try to pick tops or bottoms or whatever that is. But I'll ask this question. Could it be as simple as Bitcoin tops out in the short term. We've had a huge run up into this release or into this IPO on April 14th. Could we see a short term top based solely on the fact that that's when this company is going to list?
2: Not necessarily. I don't think the two are technically correlated as far as the company building upon this valuation per se. If you're asking me, will Coinbase track Bitcoin to a degree? Of course. But I think getting $100 billion valuation here is not out of the realm. I would not be surprised if it trades north of that. And to Dan's point, they're going to dominate. And I think when companies list, they're listing for a reason. And I think they're going to start to use their stock potentially to make acquisitions in other spaces. If they see a threat coming on with their size, they can just start adding to their portfolio. And so I agree with Dan. It's, it's here to stay. If Bitcoin pulled into you know forty five thousand right now, it certainly wouldn't affect the listing. Maybe oh. in terms of where it would trade, sure. But uh, I don't think it's predicated on that. I, so Dan I, I, so, what, what, uh,
0: hold on, Dan. Well, you 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 made you made fun of right.
2: me, so I'm gonna come
0: back at you. You said something about Guy Dami coin. Well, I saw it come into America one and two, <laughs> and Eddie Murphy, Prince Akeem, had his own coin from Zamunda. So if you can get me a coin like the Eddie Murphy coin from the Prince Akeem coin with the heads and tails, I'm in,
2: sucker. Just saying.
1: I suspect that you would be killing it in the NFT fine art market
2: right now, Guy, uh, if you will. There's no way you made it through the end of of Coming to America 2. There's no way you watched it. 100%. I loved every minute of that movie.
0: The fact that he brought back everybody that was still alive, I believe, in terms... The only person that didn't come back... (laughs) Let's play the game real quick, because I know the answer to this. The only person who's still alive, in my opinion, that didn't come back was Who? From coming to america dan want to throw a guess out mr there? mcdowell wrong 100 percent wrong eric the
2: guy from uh
0: yeah, he you're right eric lasalle was not back i'll tell you who else you. didn't come back yeah samuel jackson who if oh, you yeah. recall robbed the mcdowells dan interesting yeah, yeah so i want right. to yeah, forget both so, you guys
1: go all right yourself. well here's Sorry. the thing i'm just gonna go back to crypto for a second here You know, one of the things that that you you just asked Danny Guy, whether you think that there was some sort of psychological top coming with the listing of Coinbase next week, and maybe we'll know. We'll talk about it next week, what happens here. I think it was really interesting. One of our past guests, and and we love Meltem Demirs. we had this little battle of the boomers, if you recall, back in uh, February or so. She tweeted out this earlier in the week, and I thought this was really interesting. So she said, cryptocurrencies have an aggregate market cap of $2 trillion. Bitcoin is 55% of that. She said, don't let the suits tell you this isn't in an asset class. So I love Meltem. She owned me on our podcast. This was a couple months ago. I tweeted back to her a picture of Anthony Scaramucci talking to Andrew Ross Sorkin that morning. He is wearing the suitiest suit you can imagine. He's making the case for Bitcoin. And I was like, you know what? Nowhere in 2021 or no one has said a suit that is that this is not an asset class. Everybody's all in on it. That's the one thing that scares the hell out of me. It's like usually you can find some good det- is making some good points on it, it's really hard to find at the moment.
0: Yeah. I mean, everybody's all in. But what if let's just play the game? What if Apple magically with their $250 billion cash or decided, you know what, we're going to put 10% of our cash into crypto. Does that ch- crypto Bitcoin, whatever it is, does that change the calculus? Do you think does that take us from 58,000 to 100,000 in a straight line?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't think it does. But I think it's assumed that everyone's getting in on the game. I also think that it's indicative of everything feels like it's out there and obvious. Dan, to your point, Scaramucci just wants to be loved, but you're right. (laughs) If if, if it's reached everybody at this point, but I can name a lot of stocks where I felt like it's reached everybody. I think to answer your question, I could argue that Bitcoin goes up as a result of Coinbase being out there. And as it becomes more into the pop culture phenomenon, more people realize, oh, this is a real company, Coinbase. I can actually trade Bitcoin on this exchange, I think it'll actually bring new people into the market. It feels to me that the core Bitcoin holders, again, it's hard, like I said before, it's so top heavy, aren't really selling. And it's such a small part of their institutional side investment. If you have a a pension fund or an endowment or a family office, it has just decided to put one to 2% of their money into digital currency. Yes, you could argue if two becomes six, they can shave it back a little bit, but they're not interested in in selling it. They're not trading it, I should say.
1: It really is a means of diversification. They are literally buying it for a store of value and they're thinking about it. I know Guy has had a lot of commentary on this. He He's had this great conversation with Michael Saylor that we posted on the On the Tape feed a couple weeks ago. I mean, so your point is, is that if you have these massive multi-trillion dollar financial institutions allocating one to 2% and they're never going to sell it, you know, the, the fact is, they're just buyers waiting in the wings. And I guess that what I would just say is, that's what's different this time, guy. I mean, I guess that's what I'm going to trigger you. People are waiting for the pullbacks. We've made this point. If you look at the Bitcoin chart this year, it's up 100% year to date. There's been three pretty big sell-offs. In January, there was a 30% peak to trough decline. Then in February, there was a 26 peak to trough decline. In March, an 18% peak to trough decline. Do you get my drift here? The declines are getting smaller and smaller. So it actually really feels like it's either going to actually explode. And I'd also mention that Ethereum has Actually doubled the performance of Bitcoin this year. So if you think about the NFT phenomenon and just the kind of protocols that are being built on top of the Ethereum network, and then you think about this change that's coming to the network coming this summer, there's a lot of catalysts there. So it just seems like there's just, as our friend BK would say, there's a wall of money waiting to buy these things on any pullback.
0: So let's play the quick game that we tend to do from time to time: the Would You Rather game, because both these companies are going public. Robinhood as a publicly traded company or Coinbase?
1: Yeah, I I think I kind of answered that question before. I mean, I think that while both of these companies have probably seen their market values at least double over the last year, I look at Robinhood and I say, I am just not sure what they have innovated on. I don't see the fact that this company like offered an easy on-ramp to people to the financial markets that in somehow that was some sort of innovation by offering it no cost to, to anyone. I mean, I, I'd much rather pay for a really good service. And I think that's what Coinbase has done. They've also offered a very sleek and elegant on-ramp to the crypto world. And the other thing I'll just tell you about Coinbase, and after looking at Robinhood also, is pretty simple to me, that Coinbase has basically led with Education, and I give him a lot of credit on that. So, to me, when I think about the two, would you rather? I'd much rather own a share of Coinbase than Robinhood. I actually, you know, what I would do, guy? What do you call this trade? I'd be long Coinbase, short Robinhood on the opening. We day used to call each.
0: that a pairs trade, but it's funny you mention that because I remember, I remember like this was yesterday. Okay, I was working now in the equities division at Goldman Sachs, which is a story unto itself. But one day, Lloyd came over, Lloyd Blankfein. And he was talking to, I believe, Eric Mendich. Eric Mendich was the youngest partner at the time, at Goldman Sachs. And Eric was explaining some of these positions that they had on, long this, short that, long this, short the other thing. And he was going on for five or 10 minutes. And Lloyd looked at him and said, and as only Lloyd can do, how do you know what you're rooting for? So when you have a pairs trade on long something, short something, and I ask you, Dan, because it's actually a legit question. What are you rooting for? I mean, if you think about it, don't you have to know what you're rooting for? I mean, those pairs yeah. trades to me are just sort of – I'm not saying it's a cop-out, but I'll say it's a cop-out.
1: Yeah, I mean, not really. I mean, if you have a strong fundamental view, especially if they're competitors, I mean, the, the idea of kind of placing a pairs trade on things that aren't particularly correlated or don't have like some form – of fundamental connection here. You know, that to me is is a difficult situation. But let's go to Danny on that. Would you rather Robinhood, which is filed confidentially to go public this year? We would have actually been written writing their obituary back in January. But now they're going to be a publicly traded company at some point this year.
2: And Coinbase, which is listing direct next week, Danny. I choose Coinbase and I choose Coinbase by a long shot. And I look at Robinhood. Another regulatory issue has come about. Not a major issue, but another indication they have no idea what they're doing. So it turns out that Robinhood failed to report fractional share trades to the tape. They started offering fractional share trades, which is great, letting people buy a piece of Apple or a piece of Tesla, which is a mistake, but that's a whole other conversation. And then the trading that was occurring did not get reported. When did they come clean with this? Hmm. The week of January 25th, it appears that they ended up saying that they hadn't been reporting. What else happened on the week of the 25th? I think we all know that was the blow up with GameStop and so forth. So- I don't think Robinhood has their shit together, certainly at a $40 billion valuation relative to a Coinbase, the numbers that I just saw Coinbase put up. So I choose Coinbase in that contest.
0: No, I think you're right. I would make it joker, joker, and the triple, as they say. So we looked at the Twitter this week, Dan Nathan, and Dan Moses said to me earlier in this show that he we didn't rehearse this, but he had the same thoughts in terms of Jamie Diamond running for office at some point. So number one, we agree. We also agreed on this one, because on CNBC's fast money, second time I brought it up during the podcast, Dan. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> we talked about the following tweet. Elon Musk to Kathy Wood. What do you think of the unusually high ratio of SP market cap to GDP question mark to Kathy Wood? Now I said on the show that I didn't go to the law school, but clearly Elon Musk spent a day there because he absolutely knew the answer to the question he was going to get from Kathy Wood, and I found it so Effing disingenuous, and I said as much on the show, and I might have tweeted as much. Danny Moses, please, well, help me out. When here. I saw
2: that tweet, and then the, I think the tweet, you know, around the same time, another one from Musk, which says, "Quote: The Earth is not flat; it's a hollow globe, and Donkey King lives there." Followed by, "What do you think of the unusually high ratio of S and P market cap to GDP?" Yes, that was a planted question, and it allowed Kathy Wood to go on a tangent about how she thinks about the world, how she thinks about investing. And I want to highlight one thing that she said in her tweet. And I want to take this out of, you know, a little bit out of context of how it was exactly written, but this is what she wrote. Companies that act to satisfy short-term oriented shareholders will pay a steep price. Well, that's the biggest hypocrisy I've seen from her in terms of what she's been doing, her ETF buying, her other index fund, and, and so forth. And that's all about saving short term pain and not having to face the short term pain but now you're gonna have to face in the in the long run. So it appears that we're now tying in, you know, Musk and Wood, we always know have been somewhat tied in. It turns out that Bill Wang was tied in. There was a great article on Bloomberg written today by Schatzker about how he and Kathy Wood met at a retreat down in Princeton Christian retreat. And, you know, that's and they practice the ways of what's good for the markets. And I can go on some other quotes here from Wang.
0: Well, hold on one second. This is the Bill Wang who in 2012 pleaded guilty to, I think, insider trading and stock manipulation and paid anywhere between 45 and 60 million dollars worth of fines. That one?
2: Yes.
3: The one. Yes,
0: that one. Okay, so I just wanted to make sure it might be two. You never I'm just curious, Danny. Yeah. Just wanted
2: to know. This was his quote. I guess this is just a quote episode. I will try to invest according to the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Companies like Netflix, Facebook, Amazon, and LinkedIn are doing divine work by advancing society. I'm guessing that the movies that Netflix shows don't bother him or the movies that Amazon Studios shows don't bother him. But if this is the philosophy and more power to people that want to express their religious views, but... I think when it comes to Wall Street, using that as at, at the end of the day as an excuse or a reason does not turn out well.
0: Are you a fan of the MASH show, Dan Nathan? Remember MASH back in the 70s? Yeah, great. Alan Alda. Yeah. yeah Alan, okay. Get some energy with you. Yes, Alan Alda. But there was a great saying from Colonel Sherman T. Potter. And the saying is this, ready? Horse hockey to that. I'll say horse shit. Colonel Potter said horse hockey. That's what I say to Bill Wang's finding religion as he invests his money in 2021, Dan Nathan.
1: Here's the thing. okay? so Bill Wang actually put his money where his mouth is. I think he funded some sort of Christian charity or something to the tune of like a half a billion to a billion dollars of his own money. And then he goes ahead and loses all the rest of his own money to the tune of maybe a hundred billion dollars. It sounds like that was levered and and a lot of money of some banks that were his counterparties. So to me, this is uh, 2021. There's a lot of uh, do as I say, not as I do out there.
0: Listen, yeah, but just to tie a ribbon on this whole thing, it's interesting you mentioned that because listen, Credit Suisse, I think, was on the hook for a five billion dollar loss. And and if you back into the quarter, they're gonna say, Dan, you know this a lot better than I do, but the loss is gonna be significantly lower than that, which leads me to believe they had an outstanding quarter. Why do I bring that up? Because as we mentioned earlier, JP Morgan and the rest of the banks report next week. For you playing the stock market game at home, right now, given where JP Morgan is trading trading at 2.3 times, 2.3 times for emphasis, tangible book. We're getting into sort of nosebleed. Why do I mention that? Because right now, Citi, on the other end of that spectrum, is trading at one time tangible book. I absolutely believe that J.P. Morgan deserves a premium valuation. The question you have to ask yourself, if you are playing in the stock market, is how much and how much do they deserve? Does Citibank catch up or does J.P. Morgan trade down? I think it's the latter, but that's what makes markets, as they say, Danny.
2: Yeah, I, would, I want to tie up this Wang thing with a bow here also, in that it turns out it was 20 billion of his money, basically, family office money, levered to 100 billion. And so funny to me, the prime brokers that all kind of got together and kind of screwed each other over, Morgan Stanley and, and Goldman, Deutsche Bank, and Wells all got out unscathed. Credit Suisse was one of the one that's saying, hold on, guys, are we sure we need to do this? And remember, we talked about the Greensill issue. They probably were like, you have to be kidding me. They were about to deal with this. We're still trying to figure out this green cell thing and this Credit Suisse and this Archie Archegos thing happens to them. So they're left holding the bag because they were late, but they were aware as the, all these brokers were. But here's the thing that still doesn't make sense to me. They're saying that Bill Wang may have not committed a crime. I don't know how if, if you, you have to sign a disclosure, a lot of disclosures on Wall Street, a lot of paper trails on Wall Street. If he was intentionally hiding leverage from one broker to another, that's the same as an individual like us getting a mortgage on a property, not disclosing that in your asset or liabilities, whatever it might be. With the, fa- I don't know how this is not going to come back to him. We'll see what happens. But there has to be recourse. Now, he has nothing left. So it's, there's not even money recourse. But somebody broke the law here. And I would imagine that one of these brokers is going to come after him.
0: Miles to go before I sleep for you literature fans out there. And by the way, when we come back, we're going to go off the tape with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Stay tuned. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is the CEO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, directing the firm's initiatives in research, portfolio management, investor education, and investor relationships. Patrick also hosts the Invest Like the Best podcast, where he interviews leading investors across asset classes. Patrick, it's an absolute pleasure to have you join us today.
2: Patrick, my man, thanks for uh, coming on to be a podcast
3: guest. I want to flip the tables on you here. Thanks for having me. How many
2: times have you done interviews like this?
3: Very few. I really try to say no to most of them. I don't want people to get sick of me. And so this is maybe my fifth or something like that in five years.
0: He's bringing in the Nancy Reagan technique to just say (laughs) no. So well done by you, Patrick.
3: For Danny, I got to say yes. What do you say to your guests that you can't get to come on? How many people have told you no? A lot. These days, most people say yes. But early on, maybe half said yes, something like that. So I'm, I'm used to it. Who are you chasing right now? Maybe that you can't get a hold of that you want that you, you know, we can do a little outreach right here. All the enormous ones that I'll get to eventually, the Bezoses and the Musks of the world. But I'm not chasing anyone right now. Like we are so overloaded with stuff to do that it's been nice. It's organic. At the end of each one of mine, I ask people, who should I do next? And that's most of our pipeline.
2: So let's talk about what you've built now and we'll work our way backwards. So I checked out this Colossus Media Very impressive what you guys are doing, almost like a search engine of information of your episodes and topics and things. Can you talk about genesis of this and what you're trying to build with that?
3: Yeah, maybe I'll start at the very end, which is where we want this to end up and work backwards. So the simple idea is imagine if you could go into this application or website or whatever, and no matter what you wanted to learn about, no matter how nuanced or niche or detailed, you could access a, what I call a definitive conversation on that topic And that means an incredible host, an unbelievably well-educated domain knowledge guest, entertaining, well-edited, well-produced, blah, 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 on thousands and thousands of topics. That is the end state that we're working towards with all sorts of supplemental learning tools and materials. But we want to be the jump-off point where people go to learn about business and investing before Google, before they go anywhere else. We want them to start at Colossus. And we're very early on in that journey now. But we just launched a key step, which is episodes that I had nothing to do with, right? So a host, a guest, a production, you know, a topic, I, I wasn't involved and that's been key, but that's the end goal that we're marching towards is building a factory that produces these very detailed, definitive conversations.
2: So you're still doing invest like the best. You're still doing founder's field guide. Yeah, And you're still a portfolio manager for Shaughnessy Asset Management, correct?
3: Yeah. So it's changed a little bit. Uh, technically, yes, portfolio manager, but CEO run that business, have really turned that business from what I would call an asset management business into more of a software, investing software business. That's happened over the last three years through a product that we call Canvas, which is basically like using web-based software to design custom indexes, which we then implement and report on, on behalf of our customers, which are financial advisors. So the CEO of that business. And then last year we launched our first early stage venture fund that I'm the investor for. So those are kind of the three legs of the stool, building software, investing early stage and the media stuff.
2: So all this goes back to you're so inquisitive you love to talk to people you love to garner all kinds of information from your guests and you ask great questions have you been using all that knowledge and everything that you're doing as far as investing when you're thinking about this VC portfolio is it opportunistic because of the people that you've been able to kind of meet and so how do you kind of bring that all together
3: yeah the top question I get is like how do I manage all this stuff at once and the honest truth is I kind of only do one thing like I'm just sort of like a golden retriever chasing a car or something I just really like interesting people and ideas. I like to be in in that realm all the time. And I really like having places to put those ideas. I'm very much a zero to one, not a one to end type person. And that includes in learning. Like I like learning the first 70, 80%. I'm not as good as the upper part of the curve. I'm not a master really of anything, but I like broad reach. So all I really do is scout ideas and people and try to have companies there to catch those ideas, whether that's investing in companies, which is positive sum the fund, whether that's building software and applying software lessons I'm learning, but having a very talented team be the ones that actually build and execute that machine. So I just kind of think of myself as a scout, honestly. And that's what animates me, so I can work other people in that one dimension. Everything else, I'm kinda of shit, but in that one dimension, I, I think I'm pretty good.
1: So Patrick, you know, back in 2017, during the first crypto craze, or at least the one that caught most people's attention, you put together this hash power, series. I listened to it twice. I found it to be just such a useful resource to get my arms around a topic that everybody was talking about, but few people knew a lot about. And you put some of like the OGs in the crypto space on a multi-part series. You made it very digestible. It wasn't like a money grab, meaning like all the people coming on, like pushing their tokens or whatever the heck they were doing. It really had a long-term vision. And I really appreciate it. I've been forwarding it to people for years since then. Not much has changed since then. So tell me how did you find the topic how did you get those people together and what have you done since then on crypto building on top of that series and i i I gotta tell you if you're A 2021 crypto curious person, go back to Patrick's 2017, go to Colossus and check it out because it is truly astounding.
3: Yeah, you know, I'm actually very proud of how it's, I listened to it recently, how well it stood up. I really do think it could still be the jump off point for learning about crypto. The honesty, I'm glad you liked it because it was by far the hardest thing I've ever done in media. You know, I've written a book, like that was a pain in the ass. This thing was a bear. It was a bear to get everyone to say yes because it basically was all the top people in the ecosystem, save a few. And it was an insane amount of editing and piecing together. And I kind of didn't know what I was doing and figured it out on the fly. So it was very hard work. Ultimately, I thought it was one of the most interesting things I've ever learned about and explored. The topic, I had lunch with an institutional investing client and they were deep into it. And they were leaving their University of Chicago to go start a crypto hedge fund. And I was like, what the hell is crypto? (laughs) I don't even know what any of this is. And I studied logic in school philosophy, but logic as a specialty and within philosophy. And so it kind of like lit that part of my brain up of this elegant incentive structure and system that was just and, and is endlessly fascinating. So at the time I, I was so excited and then my conclusion was kind of boring, which was like, I'm gonna buy Bitcoin, but like other than that, there's no there there. Like nothing's built. It's a bunch of white papers and they're exciting papers, but that's all they are. And only really in the last six months have I gotten as interested again in that space as I was in early 2017, which we're happy to talk about. But but yeah, it was incredibly fun. And we're hopefully going to be doing more series like that with a little bit more mixing and matching of guests, but it's a lot of work. Patrick, when was the dinner that you had that I attended? And I was, oh, that was bit- wild. What was that? What- that would have been like summer 2017.
2: Correct. So you had me at this dinner. I think you had me be there as kind of one of the cynics who could potentially push back on stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. You had, you had like a group you of a us role. sitting. You're the one that had the I actually city, right? <laughs> You're an assignment. I was, I was thrown, so instead of actually investing, listening, I just walked out of there Was thank you for the wine and vodka, by the way, and then I think I <laughs> left there. What, what's really funny about this, about six months ago, and I'm not going to remember the guy's name, but while we were there, I was introducing people to other people. I'm like, oh, this woman, Elizabeth Stark's brilliant. And you introduced me to her. And I remember trying to have a, like a follow-up lunch. And I just kind of forgot about it. I know Chad Cascarilla. Some guy says to me, Danny, I want to thank you so much. I said, for what? He said, uh, you introduced me to Chad. I work at Paxos now, which changed my life. I'm like, really? I go, I'm so, I'm, I'm so happy for you, man. That is, that is awesome. Yeah, he looked, you know, couldn't be happier. I can't remember his name. It's going to escape me. But it was so timely. And all I remember doing is watching. If Maybe if Dan Nathan had been invited instead of me we'd be on Dan Nathan's boat somewhere. You know, but it was really amazing and the, the foresight that you had. And then I know you had that conference in Missouri last year, 2019. Two years ago, yeah. And yeah. And I know that was like Bethany McLean and you really had some thinkers and I wish I could have made that there. But doing that stuff and getting those people together. And I know you're all about connectivity and people and sharing of knowledge. And I think what you've done is incredible. And to put this stuff out there and allow people to access it, I think is, is great, especially with how bad Wall Street research is and how difficult it is to really get to the real thoughts behind a lot of these stories.
3: Honestly, the main lesson I've learned, maybe in the last five years, especially, which has been kind of a fun, explosive period, is that ideas are extraordinarily important and helpful, but they're kind of useless. Execution is way harder. So the stuff should all be free and open. In the same way, open source is a wonderful movement in technology and software, I just think of this as the same thing, but for knowledge instead of code. I think it's kind of our obligation to get it all, organize it all, put it out there. Because then people can build great stuff on top of that knowledge. But the building is still the hard part, to be clear. But I do believe very deeply that it's sort of my role in the world to put this stuff out there.
0: What did you see in crypto in 2017? Which, by the way, I mean, if I know you know this. I mean, December 2017 is when this thing topped out for three years. But what did you see that really got you jazzed about the space?
3: That it had survived to that point. That Bitcoin most specifically and at the time Ethereum was still pretty young but I was extremely intrigued by I was extremely intrigued by the technology of Ethereum much more so than Bitcoin but Bitcoin much more so as an investment than Ethereum. I think Bitcoin's ultimate benefit is that it's not tied to anything. Like the fact that ETH has a utility is actually a bad thing in my opinion because you can sort of like build some sort of model for what's valuable in the system and what's not versus just pure narrative like with Bitcoin. So what intrigued me was there was this thing at the time it was I guess 300 billion or 200 billion of market cap and that it had survived that it hadn't been hacked that when you dug into the the encryption stuff like the SHA-256 stuff you get deep into like the CIA's history involvement with that with that encryption algorithm you look at the mining distribution like all this network had sort of bootstrapped itself into existence without any centralized control it was just fascinating i just couldn't believe it there was a thing and that there was so much liquidity in it and so much market cap in it despite this kind of self-organizing nature of it. So that's what most intrigued me. And then the podcast I'm releasing next week is with Chris Dixon. I think we're now at the second layer of like, holy shit, there's actually interesting applications to be built on top of this. I don't know if you guys have used like Uniswap or like some of these things, but it's pretty damn cool and it works and it's fast and it's instant. And it feels like we may see another leg here of actual infrastructure that's, that's pretty special.
2: Of your guests that have come on just to switch gears a little bit, and you don't have to name me because I'm definitely not in, the, in your top five favorites. But the people that you've had on that had left the biggest impression on you, both from an investment standpoint and a philosophical standpoint, can you have you thought about that before? Or who would you kind of point to that really have kind
3: of a... In fact, if you go to the website and you sort on most popular, the audience is really well calibrated to your question. The top ranked episodes, it's not one for one, but... A lot of the ones that are the rank the most popular are also the ones that had the largest impact on me. I'll give a few examples. And they tend to be people who just kind of scramble your brains because they're so smart and they're looking at things from such a unique perspective. John Collison's a good example at Stripe. That's kind of a cliche one. Everyone knows how smart he and his brother and that whole team are. One that probably is the underdog favorite is a guy named Nick Kakonis, who actually was in the news recently because he, he just sold this company, Talk, for like $400 million. So he's done really well but he was a Wall Street guy who turned restaurant tour who ran a in Chicago best restaurant in the world or the country or whatever and the guy's business acumen and thinking is just stunningly good and that is probably the one that we heard the most from the audience about if I said to some 20 year old like listen to any one of these it would be listen to that one his clarity of thinking is is stunning and then a guy named Charlie Songhurst comes to mind who's over in the UK. And again, just this framework after framework after framework for thinking about it. Charlie, if Nick was sort of like the business episode that's best, Charlie is one of the most interesting investing episodes. He's seen so many different companies. He used to run strategy for Microsoft. So just a brilliant, brilliant guy. Those three are extremely popular. They pop most immediately to mind. But honestly, Danny, there's hundreds. Most of them have some sort of impact on me. Most of what I know has come from these people. So- Uh, It's been a great experience.
0: How did you get to where we are? April 2021, there's a backstory, obviously, for Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and I think it's interesting for people to hear how you've become as interesting and as curious as you are. So tell us a little bit about yourself, if you can.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess the answer is step by step. I'm a huge believer that the North Star is to be interested, not interesting. And if you do that long enough, that you'll eventually seem interesting to other people. But that's never the target. I certainly don't consider myself interesting. I definitely consider myself curious. And I don't know, I guess I was just always like that. So, like I said, I studied philosophy. I was trying to figure out what, what does it all mean, you know, from a pretty young age. I mentioned the logic focus and a field called epistemology, which is like, how do we know what we know? So, like pretty intense navel gazing stuff. I got lucky in that when I graduated in 07, my dad was leaving Bear Stearns asset management to start up a new asset management firm. And I joined as an intern, L- literally just let me just see how a business gets set up. You know, this is probably valuable. And I very quickly fell in love with quantitative research. So I spent like eight years really just building predictive models for public equities. That was a great education. I mean, it was like a really cool alternative MBA. Like I didn't study companies or finance in the traditional way. I studied it all through data. And so I got to see and feel through data how businesses worked, how competitive advantage worked and so on, capital allocation. I tapped out. I ran out of skill. Our team now is 10X more talented data science-wise than I was I started doing more broad investing, exploration, writing, listening, building, and that was you know six or seven years ago. And I've basically been on that train ever since. So those are the two major chapters, sort of like nerd in a closet doing research to you know sort of expansively curious business explorer.
0: Well, you glossed over a couple of things. You glossed over the fact that you went to Notre Dame, which is a fantastic place. You have a long lineage there, which is also fantastic. And your father's a bit of a legend in the business. Can you sort of speak to that? Because he wasn't just some dude who left Bear Stearns. I mean, I like the way you you said that, but that's not true and you know it.
3: Starting with Notre Dame, there's a long family history there. My great-grandfather, who was born 100 years before me in 1885, had a crazy name. His name was Ignatius Aloysius O'Shaughnessy. So everyone called him I.A. I.A. was the 13th kid, so they ran out of saints' names, which is why they called him Ignatius Aloysius. And he was an extremely successful oil wildcatter, one of the most successful. He gave away almost all of his money in his, in his lifetime, lived to be almost 90, and was a big benefactor at Notre Dame. So basically from his time through to my graduation, there was always me or one of my cousins was always in school there. And what I, I would say like imbued in the family's sort of like DNA is these twin pillars of entrepreneurship and philanthropy. And it's almost too much, honestly, like the family reunions, like, do we have to watch this stupid video again? Like we get it, but he's an adored figure sort of in our family lore. And I would say that really, it's, it's really true. If you hang out with my cousins, like they're all entrepreneurs and then they give their money away. And it's a very cool, very heavy risk-taking, hardcore Irish Catholic family. And my dad is a great example of that. I mean, he, I think we've all been really lucky to come from lots of privileged background, but he took it all and basically pushed the chips all back in to build a totally separate business from the family business, which was a series of asset management businesses culminating in the current one, OSAM. And like you said, he's one of the earliest quantitative researchers on Wall Street, doing a lot of that work in the '90s with the Lacona shocks and the Asnesses and the Fama's of the world, and built a huge franchise around that research. So yeah, I've been very lucky to be a part of not just in my immediate family, but in the broader family and sort of the spirit of, of what they try to accomplish.
1: So Patrick, as it relates to your pop though, you left one thing out. The guy slays on Twitter. He, he's actually much better at Twitter than you are. I mean, you're a fantastic podcaster, okay? I'm gonna give you that. But the guy is like got this meme game and everything like that. Like what's his deal? Is, is, like what, what is, where, where did he get the skills from?
3: You'd have to ask him. I tease him that he's the first person to enter the metaverse and uh, we'll all catch up at some point. Like I think that's actually true. He loves ideas. He loves young people with a lot of energy. He's much funnier than me. I'm way more intense and he's more likable. Like, he is exactly as he seems like, kind of funny and likable and jovial and. Very positive and optimistic. You know, look; he's at a stage of his career when when he can do that. He can be the the dawn of Twitter, and I think he really enjoys it. And you know, interacts with a lot of people, and I think it's very helpful to a lot of people. Very generous with his time. So yeah, he's the first he's the first person I know that is natively online and has entered the metaverse. <laughs>
2: Patrick, I, I got to say, I got to bust your chops a little bit because you know when you first started out and you got your first sponsor, I think it was the cfa institute and you did you know like the 15 second now i go on your podcast i got to get through like a couple minutes of like major sponsor providers so i know a guy like you would never quote sell out but congrats on on getting that going and i know it's been it, it's really blown up for you but question and you rarely opine on this do you have any Thoughts on the market itself. I know you don't like to talk about it that much. Like you don't, you like other people to talk about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts because I I don't get a lot of that out of you. Kind of where we are right now.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess my first point would be having studied every strategist and met a lot of them and been interested in all this data for a long time. My main take almost always is like nobody knows nothing. Almost every smart sounding take seems to be very reliably wrong or significantly off. So I spend very little time trying to form market views. I believe very deeply in equity as a concept, as a cornerstone of a portfolio. I don't own any bonds like I've never have. So I'm very much like a stocks for the long run kind of person and very long-term in nature. That being said, I'm fascinated by markets dynamics of what's going on. I see them at the early stages now in seed and series A. I see them in the public equities through our business. I don't know. I've never been more excited about... My friend Gavin Baker said something interesting the other day, which was, I don't think any PMs right now have seen a high single digit GDP growth here in their careers. We're about to see that in the US. There's something very dynamic and interesting going on here that none of us have seen before. Like, What if this is a period of just unbelievable technological explosion and GDP growth and all this other stuff? That being said, the market's priced for that. So to me, my like classical value training everything looks crazy expensive and insane, but everyone's been saying that for 10 years and seven years and five years, and it's been a horrible way to view the world. So I don't have a market view, Danny. I I wish I did. I don't have one because I think anyone that does is just tended to be very wrong.
0: I'm so happy you said that. You couldn't be more right because part of my job is to try to do exactly the things that you're reticent to do. Smart for you. It's aggravating for me. But one (laughs) thing that you are, I mean, these four words sort of embrace the antithesis of what I do. Learn, build, share, repeat. Can you speak to that? Because that's effectively your investment
3: philosophy. Yeah, it's more than that. It's my human operating manual. It's just how I think, it's how I'm going to conduct myself and how I like to hopefully orient businesses I'm associated with conducting themselves. And it's a very, I like it because it's very simple. So I'll just go word by word. I mean, learn is for me, the reminder that if you ever think you've got it figured out, you're dead. Everything that's interesting is a very complex system that's always changing. It's always dynamic. So you need to be perennially curious about the space that you're playing in. And if you're not constantly learning, like you're just toast immediately. So it's both very fun, but also very necessary to do well. Build is maybe the most important word in here because a lot of people are perennial learners. They love to read. They love to talk. They love to ideate, but they never actually do anything with it. So our rule is When you learn something, you have to turn it into something. You have to like put your spin on it or build something with it that is the way you actually learn. So, whether that's recording a podcast and publishing it, whether it's building a piece of software, building a product, you know, writing a post, like whatever it might be, you need to process and produce something to really learn anything. Otherwise, you're just spinning your wheels. Share is, I think, the important lesson of the internet is that you want stuff out there there is a benefit to putting stuff out there. even if And the best stuff to put out there is stuff that you want to hold proprietary. Like if you feel like you found something amazing that you could get really rich on or something, my experience teaches me like that's exactly the thing you want to get out there very quickly because ultimately you become known for that thing. Helpers start coming from all over the world to teach you things and give you ideas and work with you or for you. And by sharing constantly as a default, like being default open, back to that open, I've studied open source software a lot and really enamored with that model. Everything is better. It's better for you. It's better for the world. It's better for business and it's counterintuitive. So less people do it. It's less competitive. Most people have a proprietary closed mindset. And I think by default sharing, you can just race ahead of everybody else. So. Learn, build, share, repeat just works everywhere. It works in content, it works in software, it works in business. I just really like it as a baseline philosophy.
2: Patrick, I just wanna ask, I know you, you don't wanna give a view on the markets, but there are individual stocks that are out there and I'm not gonna put you on the spot to whether you think something like a Tesla is a long or a short, although we'll talk about that offline. But when there's a person like Elon Musk that's supposed to be a leader and you watch investors, other people flock to it, and you, you just went through this whole mindset and philosophy of how you approach things. Does it frustrate you? Again, I don't need you to make a comment on Tesla or not. Watching people fall into various traps, or watching the retail investor get roped into some of these meme stocks—you know, the whole GameStop thing—that does that frustrate you? Does that make you want to even do more to educate people and get them to think differently?
3: Honestly, it does not frustrate me because I just think so much of it is just human nature. When you study enough market history, you're just like, "This is the same shit over and over and over again." Like, there's 20 episodes like this that you can go study. And it's going to be that way forever. People are always going to make the same mistakes. Education cannot and does not eliminate human nature and the investing mistakes that are almost seem like embedded in human DNA. So I don't let it frustrate me because if I did, I would go crazy. That being said, of course, I want to shed light on helpful concepts and helpful narratives and hold people up that I view as great examples of builders, of investors, and whatever to, for others to emulate because I think. That's what people need. They need exposure to good role models, good thinking models. And so I don't get frustrated by it. I think it's always going to be here. I'll be honest with you. I enjoy it. When the GameStop thing is happening, I just think like, God, what a time to be alive. I'm so lucky to be able to watch this happen. Or even just this family office thing, this blow up that just happened, Archegos. Even that to me, I just feel like studying it. This is just fascinating to me. How is Goldman always on the right side of these things? Like, What is it inherent in their system, their culture, their people? that they're never holding the bag? Like that is just a fascinating question to me. And so far, actually it's the opposite of frustrated. I'm just just endlessly interested in this stuff. And I think it's always gonna be like this.
0: It's funny, Dan said your father's a bit of a badass on Twitter and he is. And you can tell he's definitely got an edge to him and he's a bit of a rebel. And you know why I know that? Because he went to the University of Minnesota. Explain that one to me. How did he get out of going to Notre Dame and how did he wind up as a golden gopher.
3: Well, he was chasing a girl. Uh, it turned come out, come on, is that is
0: that right? Yeah, yeah. that's so fantastic.
3: They, so they met. My parents met when they both went to Georgetown for a time.
0: Whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. Say that again slowly, please. <laughs>
3: <laughs> both went to Georgetown. Thank you. Uh, I think only only for maybe a year each. I honestly don't even remember. My mom was studying journalism. And the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota was one of the best journalism schools in the country and also where they grew up. They both grew up in Minnesota. I was born in Minnesota. So she went back there. And my dad, to your point, I think he only ended up getting his college degree to make his mom happy. He didn't care. And we share some views on kind of higher education and that sort of credentialing topic for another time. But he was basically prioritizing being what turned out to be my mom, his wife. And, uh, ultimately a golden gopher, although I, you know, he does not identify as one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, Patrick, I've been waiting four years to ask you this question since you ruined me with that and surprised me. And I know, you know, you knew this was coming, but what's the kindest thing anybody has ever done for you?
3: I've, a- I've answered it a few times now and I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, a- I'm always trying to think like, do I give another, another kind of new answer? Cause I, cause I have done it a few times. The answer that I get over and over with this question. I've done 250 of these now. It's very cool to like look back at all of them. They fall in a very few number of categories, family, parents, spouse, probably most common, either just like a general kindness or some specific episode. The one that is most interesting is this concept of someone that took a bet on me early in my life where they didn't need to and they didn't really benefit from it. They just took a chance on me and that kicked everything off. So I have a little fun one of that. The true answer is my wife, my kids, my my parents, you know, my siblings. Those are all the kindnesses that matter most. And my cousin who's since passed away, who introduced me to my wife in this kind of incredible show of kindness when I got to Notre Dame, showing me around, you know, introducing me to all his friends, my wife, my best man, another groomsman. I mean, really kind of put me under his wing. So th- those are the real answers. The take a chance on you answer is a guy in Canada who worked for the Royal Bank of Canada who was was and is our largest client at Osam. His name was Bill Hill. He took a chance on me very early on because in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, I was very young in my early 20s and there's a lot of explaining to do. We had to go around and explain to unit holders all over Canada like not only what had happened in the market but what had happened in our portfolios. You know, it was it was pure carnage. It was all hands on deck and I frankly did not belong in that tour explaining markets and performance at age 23 or 24. But Bill took a big chance on me and spent a very long time with me flying all over Canada, really kind of coaching me. Like I kind of feel like I became an adult and a professional on that trip. And it was entirely because he took a lot of care to let me fail a little bit, coach me up, put a lot of faith in me. I'm a pretty good public speaker, so like I was able to make it happen. And that took a lot. And it could have been incredibly embarrassing for him had I not done a good job. (laughs) So I'll always be thankful to Bill Hill. I've told this story one one other time. But that was pretty cool to be so young and have someone just put their neck out on my behalf and teach me a lot. I try to do that for other people a lot because of Bill.
2: Patrick, we're lucky that you are still young and you're going to be doing this for the next, hopefully 50 years. And uh, keep all the great info coming. You're a great entertainer, you're a great educator, and you're great to be with. And can't thank you enough for coming on on the tape with us today.
3: It was so fun. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Patrick, thanks once again for joining us. If you're listening to this in a podcast store, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at OnTheTapePod, and we'll see you next week.